you have this feeling creeping up as that, well, I'm working so hard, nobody recognizes it. And then that's the burnout. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. We are gearing up for the Virtual Veterinary Financial Summit coming up on September 30th and October 1st. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Ivan Zak. He is a veterinarian, a serial entrepreneur, the CEO of Galaxy Vets, and he's also an advocate for the well-being of veterinary professionals. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Ivan, you and Galaxy Vets recently published the third annual veterinary burnout study, and there are lots of interesting findings in the study, but I'd like to start by unpacking some of the financial aspects. And so what were the most significant financial-related findings of the study? Well, just to give a little bit of a sort of background on study, how we run it, this is the third year we're doing this. And usually we run a couple questions, if you will, in parallel. One is every year we want to determine how burnout people are. So we just want to make sure that they are truly burned out. So we're using a professional fulfillment index which is the scoring that was developed in Stanford, similar to BMI, which is a gold standard for burnout. So we always run that. And then in parallel, we always have some hypotheses that we want to test out in that particular year. And they're sort of our curiosity points and whether we want to associate the compensation and how it's associated with the burnout or different you know, professional allocation like technician versus doctor versus manager. Uh, whether it's age group. So every year we want to answer some additional questions to burnout and slice the demographics in a different way. So based on what we found this year, the interesting thing is that the burnout is a little lower than it has been during the pandemic. So we're back to pre-pandemic level, but we're still burned out as a profession. So there's no, <laughs> there's no cure yet. And then one of the things that we asked is this question about the compensation. And that's what I guess this particular question could be answered with. So the interesting thing is that my hypothesis have been is that uh, veterinarians might be happier to be a salaried employees rather than commission-based. And there's various reasons why I thought that way, but we found that it's a slightly different angle that the answers were given to us, but essentially that people that have more certainty in their future or the financial planning, they are happier. And then the other question that we had, we asked people, are you commission-based or do you prefer commission-based or salary? So people that were commission-based or pro-sell, whatever you call that, seem to have more certainty in their future. So therefore, they are controlling their destiny and how much they earn. So that correlation could be made that people that are on pro-sell are actually prone to less burnout. So that's kind of the inference that we made based on the data. Well, with that said, what do you see are the main pros and cons of production-based pay structure? I have my theories. (laughs) So I think there's multiple. So one is, again, they're not all directly correlated. The big thing for me, and personally as a veterinarian, I worked my first year out of vet school on ProCell, and I was, you know, motivated by money. It was interesting because the first year out of school, I made probably more than any of my classmates because I went straight to ER. And the first three months I was working on the salary and they said, here's your reports. And if we will pay you pro-sell, 
you actually will be paid significantly more because you're making more. So who would say no to that? And then the moral dilemma behind it was that, you know, if you guys been to ER, you know how it is. It's the worst probably place to be and you're not playing with kittens and puppies as everybody thinks you do. And then everybody who sees you, they don't want to see you. There's zero people that are in the vet ER that want to see you. They've been sitting at home, having a beer, eating a pizza, and their dog started puking. They have to stuff the dog in the car and in their PJs go to the vet. Spend $150, $75 for the appointment, and then hear that the pizza slice that they gave caused pancreatitis, which will cost them $3,500. So they hate you, and they tell you that you're all about the money. And that's the experience that I lived through many times. And the other thing is, you know, on the back of your mind, if you're on 21, 23, whatever it is, pro-sell, you're taking an x-ray in the back of your mind, you're working the calculator, you're doing a surgery, you're thinking, okay, this is the you know, good hour spent. So it's not that necessarily you, you might think that you're a good person, you're not doing it, but the calculator in the back of your mind works. So I thought that if I roughly will estimate what I want to be making per shift, because I'm a certain number of hours there, and that will go away. And that experience was consistent. So out of my 12 plus years of emergency, when people told me in my face that it's all about the money, you're just trying to run additional tests on my dog, I was in some places, and especially at the end when I was really burned out, I could straight in the face of the client say, if you go home right now, I'll be paid the same and I'll probably have a nap. So it's up to you if you want to be here or not. I'm here to treat your pet. And if you're going to be rude to me, then it's not going to happen. <laughs> so I became quite cynical when I was burned out. But, but that's the big thing for me is that, so the negative, the negative of that is the pro-sell. Another negative of pro-sell, and it's again my experience in my first ER where I worked, it depending on how the people are paid because you have different shifts. And then let's say one person made a recommendation to run a blood test and then they go home. They pass on the case to the next veterinarian. Well, dilemma is who's getting paid. Is it the person who called or the person who reported and interpreted? So we had this rule, it was called two out of three. If you called on the test and then interpreted, but then called the owner, you're paid. If you interpreted and called the owner, but in order, you're paid. Well, I had a colleague that I was the junior, so I was always the night guy, and I would come in at 8 p.m. and this vet would come out in the exam room or in the waiting area and go, blood test, x-ray, blood test, x-ray, and just basically assigned to the entire line in the front desk, what is she going to do? And then she would sit for the next two hours, wait for the results to come in, and then update everybody. And then she would be paid for entire room of everybody who's staying overnight. And I would be just, you know, fluid therapy and monitoring the pets. You know, that there was that. And I haven't seen it that many times, but it does exist. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that I think that commission-based pay promotes economic euthanasia. And that's the finding that we did prove in our study that economic euthanasia does affect veterinarians significantly when it comes to burnout. And I can talk about the correlation there and the finding in the study. But what I think is that if you have a system where the GP is on commission and their goal from their management is to produce X number of dollars and then they're also motivated, what you're trying to do when the patient is there is to run every test on the planet, do everything you can before the end of the day and ship it to ER because you have to go home. So you squeeze the customer and spend all their money. Then they arrive to ER where they go, all right, there's the same vet or different vet, I mean, but with the same motivation. I need to run as many tests as I can, as many x-rays as I can, and hospitalize and do everything I need to do. 
So they are rerunning everything, squeezing the customer again. And then by the end of that investigation, they say, okay, and then in the morning, we need to do an ultrasound and transfer you to either a surgeon or internal medicine. And then as the night guy, you get yelled by a specialist because you spend all the client money and you squeeze the customer along the way where they arrive to specialists. They don't have the money and they have to euthanize the patient. So essentially the system is set up in a way where we're taking care not of the patient, but how much we can squeeze them along the way. Think about if everybody was only paid by salary along the way. You're not going to squeeze the customer more than they have available or more than they need the value to be delivered. But it will be delivered if everybody's paid salary along the way. The GP might have said, you know what, you'll need to go to ER because you're unstable. Let's not waste your money. Send you to ER. ER would say, look, you probably will benefit with seeing a specialist. I'll run your blood work and they can work with it, but it will be ready for them to see you at 8 a.m. And then the specialist in the morning will use the blood work that you already have and then do specialized tests. And everybody treated the patient fairly. We didn't gouge the client. And then we all acted as a team of professionals in favor of the pet health. So that was my long answer to your question. (laughs) It was a great answer. You actually just opened my mind as far as, okay, I think general practitioners can be on base plus production But yeah, the whole ER component, I think there's some bias if you are on based on production in ER. Yeah. Mm. So coming from an environment where I was an ER doctor and was paid on both salary and then later paid on production, a few thoughts there. I mean, I can see your point of view, Ivan. I, I can see how that could happen if everyone is trying to do as much as they can and do as many diagnostics as they can. I think if there's a lack of communication or if there's poor communication from the veterinarian to the client as far as what the expectations are, I think that's where that could come into play even more. Because I mean, if a GP is saying, hey, you need to go to the ER, it's probably going to cost thousands of dollars and they're preparing the client for that. You know, that's one thing. I also have seen cases where they just want to go home. And so they're sending the case to the ER and then we give them the estimate. And then we're having the longer conversation about quality of life and whether they want to continue care. Where do you think spectrum of care comes into play with this? Do you think production-based compensation is directly at odds with spectrum of care? Do you think it depends on the vet and their ability to communicate with the owner? Well, I know that this is a modern word of spectrum of care, so and I've heard it unpacked three different ways. So what do you refer to when you're talking about the spectrum of care? Yeah, so I'm really referring more to the thing that I don't consider to be new, which is just if they can't do plan A, then we offer plan B. And if they can't do plan B, then we offer plan C. I know some folks are coming out with kind of newer terminology, but that's what I mean when I say it. So, I mean, there's probably a direct correlation there. It's pretty easy connection that if the veterinarian is motivated to increase the profitability of the hospital, which is the intent. I mean, No matter how you slice it or what lipstick you put on it, that's what management wants to do. They want you to order more tests to increase profitability of the clinic. So the affordability of it suffers because you are trying to do more and you're definitely coming out with a Cadillac plan. And then there's also at play the veterinarians because they always want to go the other way because they want to discount everything. And that's just who we are. 
a lot of vets and myself guilty too are going into plan B without knowing that the plan A was actually something that they wanted. But I think there's a direct correlation and it's difficult. We don't have enough training to actually do this right. We don't have enough training as veterinarians that this is the right way to present it and it fluctuates with the, you know, years of experience. When you're a new grad, you want to do every test on the planet because that's how they taught you in school. But at the same time, you're afraid because as a new grad, you have a lot of loans and, you know, every hundred dollars is a huge bill for yourself. So you are judging the client by your economic stability. You're thinking they can't afford it. So you're in this moral dilemma that I think further brings us to burnout because when they can't explain properly why the tests are needed and sell them, if you will, because it is selling. And how do you position yourself in the exam room and explain the value? I have a friend in Australia, Dr. Gerard Apoli, and they did actually have a behavioral specialist looking at the video recording of the new grads in the exam room. And they explain everything down to the body language, why they're doing it wrong when they explain the value of the test to the client. You know, just based on how do you look on the floor? How do you close up? Is your body language when you're explaining it? So all of those things, I mean, play a role, but I think there is a direct sort of juxtaposition of those two things of the affordability of care and the pro-sell concept. Okay. So you think because it's kind of always in the back of a veterinarian's mind that it's an influence whether they want to believe it or not? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, another thing I saw at least since COVID started was more and more GPs just wanting to punt everything to the emergency room as quickly as they could. And so I don't know if they're on production, at least for GPs, maybe pressure from the other side to try to get people out on time so that they don't lose all of their staff. Well, and that's another thing about the staff. You're bringing a good concern that also plays a role. The pro cell never accounts for the staff. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, the veterinarian who is motivated by a lot of production and it's built into their compensation, it works against the staff because the staff is not going to receive more than their you know, 20 bucks an hour if they see two patients or six patients. So for them to be motivated to do it, I think there needs to be a different compensation where as the clinic produces more because the vet's seen more, then there is a correlation of the incentives in their line for the staff as well as for the veterinarian. And I don't see that a lot or at all in our industry. And so what do you think would be the ideal compensation model? I know that might be a hard question, but... No, I know, I know the exact answer to that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's a theory, but I think it's a combination of two things. I think there needs to be the long-term and short-term reward. So the long-term reward, if in the structure of the organization, there was the equity share and to a certain percentage to everybody. It does come with a significant education of the staff in the financials. You can't just say, here's, you have some shares and it's something that you can't touch and it's somewhere. That's not going to work. Nobody's going to be motivated by that. And I think that's the next layer of management. But the short-term gains need to be based on some sort of a bonus system for the staff as well. And that's what we're bad at. In the larger organization, they're good at, but they're too greedy. So for example, if I run my hospital and I want to grow next year 10%, Set whatever it is, set 15%, set 12%, but that's your budget. And then essentially you can set, and then if you run your financials properly, you can set a week-to-week budget to run the financials so you can see where you want to be on each week because it fluctuates seasonality and everything else. You can do months to months. But then think of that that's my stretch goal as a business owner. I want to be at this revenue. If your team achieves that and then goes beyond that, why don't you share that with them as a bonus? 
but everybody, not just the veterinarian. And you can do a combination of that. You can do a pro-sell for a veterinarian, so they're driving the top line, essentially. But then the staff knows that if they will facilitate all of these extra appointments and faster, then if they reach a certain number in the hospital of production or revenue or bottom line, whatever you associated with, then they know that they will be compensated extra. And you'll be very surprised to see how the staff is then motivated to see that extra patient and they will be pushing the doctor and the doctor knows that they're compensated more, but it does require as particular metrics delivered to the staff. And it needs to be in an easy format. So there's a great book called Great Game of Business, and it's a methodology where essentially one of the components that they have, they allow people to understand how do you achieve a goal through what you control. So if I'm a receptionist, tell me what COGS are, the cost of goods sold. Over my head, I have no idea what that is. Or, you know, the technician, explain them the expenses, revenue, the profit, like none of that is going to register with them. But if we'll say, look, if I'll see X number of patients per day, then you will get your bonus. Okay, as a receptionist, I can say, all right, if I convert more customers that are calling in into the appointment, we'll see more customers. And the goal is to see 45 per day, and we're seeing right now 40. So the goal is 45, but when we go to 47, then that's where the bonus is. It's easy for me as a CSR. And then if a technician, I know that if we need to see 45 plus patients, I will count them. I will put them on the whiteboard and as a team, we'll be going, okay, we have three more to go. Come on, people, let's do this. So this could be a really motivating thing. What you're doing, you're doing actually financial forecasting and then you have weekly huddles or monthly huddles and say, okay, what can we do as reception or as the CSRs to see 45, 47 patients? And they can say, okay, convert more calls, send more reminders, you know, whatever the tactic that they control they can say, okay, we think we can hit 48. Then you ask the same question of the group of the technicians and say, what can we do to see up to 47 patients a day? Usually we see 45. They can say, okay, we can turn the rooms faster. We can kick out the doctor faster out of the room and present the estimate ourselves. We can take the history in front of the doctor. And then how many can you do? What do you think we can do next month? Okay, we can do 48. And this is one, two, three, four, five things we will do. The same thing for everybody in the hospital. So you're associating the budget number to this thing that you can control. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing by them committing how they're going to get there, you're actually doing financial forecast, but every member of the team and committing to it, you're getting accountability. And when they do go over 45, then you split whatever is surplus on that across the hospital based on their compensation level. So, you know, you'll take someone who's paid $100,000 a year they will get 10% of it. Someone's paid $50,000, they're getting you know 5% of that. So just kind of split between the entire team and split it evenly based on their compensation. That depends if money is the motivator, because at the end of the day, you're expecting more work from them. Of course, you're going to compensate them for that. But I guess the idea is, oh yeah, everybody wants to work for money. And in our profession, that's sometimes not the case. That's true. But then depends who are you asking. So I'm explaining to you as the business owner, this is how I would structure the bonus compensation that interests people. And then I would probably select the teams. If again, I'm a business owner and I have financial goals, I will select the team that is motivated by money. If I have had the team that is motivated by not doing work, then okay, maybe that's an environment that you want to have. But I'm all for the work-life balance. I mean, I've been doing studies last five years on this and I went through burnout and this is a very big topic. But I don't know if you guys bumped into Daniel Pink and his work on the book Drive. So intellectual employees and veterinarians are those are not motivated by money. They're motivated by mastery, autonomy, and purpose. 
So if your organization has a proper purpose and ask any consolidator if they have one, and I'm struggling to find one for the last five years, and then mastery veterinarians and nerds by nature, in a good way, we are. So provide them with a structured, continuous education, not just like here's your 1500 bucks, go to any conference to get drunk with your classmates, but <laughs> structure that you want to learn ultrasound next year, split it into first quarter, I want to learn chest ultrasound, second quarter, whatever it is, help the new grad who had goals to become a vet and now has no goals to set up the goals to learn something each quarter. So you're providing them with mastery and then autonomy. Those are the things that vets are motivated by. And then they want to do what they want to do. But if there's also motivation from the team to make money along the way, why not? As long as you don't burn out. Because burning out is not seeing more patients. Burning out, there's six triggers to burnout. And overwork is only one of those triggers. And overwork is not necessarily seeing more patients. Seeing more patients could be very rewarding because that's the little game that you play. And you want to see more patients in a unit of time and get rewarded for it. And also participate in the reward of your staff. Because if I know that by seeing more patients, not only I get compensated, but the techs who's paid 20 bucks an hour and I help them to get paid more, that's rewarding to me. That was great <laughs> because we talk about practice purpose a lot. And it's like, do you have a purpose? And it's usually a, some sort of vague statement. But then also setting goals with the veterinarians as far as for the practice, but also personal goals or learning goals, like you mentioned, I love the idea of, hey, every quarter, ultrasound, you know, whatever else you want to do, that's amazing. That benefits the veterinarian and the practice. And then I love the word autonomy, because I feel like we like to micromanage a lot, and I would like more autonomy in vets and in vet techs and whatnot. Yep. So going back to the subject of burnout, it seems like there's a trend downwards, meaning at least your report starts stating that it went back to before pandemic levels. But who are experiencing the most burnout in the veterinary profession? So it kind of changed interestingly, because when we started, so this is the third study. And my first intent when I started this, this is a part of my dissertation, I actually wanted to know, are we truly burned out? Because everybody heard about the horrendous suicide rates in our profession. But I was just curious, is it like a shark attack, you know, when you hear about one and everybody knows, but that statistically it's not actually that high? And unfortunately, no, we're truly burned out. But the interesting finding that I had in the first year, I shouldn't say I, my team, there's a lot of people behind it, that it's actually technicians that are burned out more than the veterinarians. And we all talk about the veterinarians. And then it changed. So first two years, it was technicians that were more. And then this year, it looks like that managers actually are more burned out than other professions. Awesome. And what about veterinarians? Is there a specific industry where you see more burnout? I think that ER vets definitely, but also those that are on call are more burned out than those that are not. Okay. So another remarkable finding in the study was the preference for remote and hybrid work arrangements. I think this is the first report that I seen talk about that. So I was like so excited about the data. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I think we're incredible profession that we failed to deploy telehealth despite pandemic. Like this is the only industry that managed not to pull off conversion into more remote environment. Because through the pandemic, we started working with consolidators at that point, And I had one of the consolidator clients, they had 49 hospitals. 
And when pandemic started, I talked to them and I said, okay, so what are you guys doing? They said, we put telehealth in all 49 hospitals. So that's great. How did it work? And how long ago did you do it? Three weeks ago, all 49, we subscribed for this software. And I said, what's the revenue of your telehealth? $264. <laughs> so <laughs> basically buying a tool doesn't build you a house. You need to know how to use the tool. And we are not taught in the vet school how to use telehealth. So when the pandemic hit and someone came in and said, I had a solution, we're going to do remote telehealth. And then I go, I had 30 patients a day and 30 appointments booked. And now I have them in the parking lot because we're doing the stupid curbside thing. And then in between, you're suggesting I need to insert telehealth appointments. When am I doing those? So the industry got really confused of how we're going to do it. And I think that the solution to that is actually deploying it separately. You can have the same people doing it, but not on the same day. So essentially, when I'm talking about remote, I think correctly, it's inserted when you have a hospital and then the people have schedule in there. But aside from that, you bifurcate the cases that are coming in through teletriaging. So you're understanding that this case may benefit from the remote and of course, with the VCPR in place, but this case could be seen online or this client. You don't have to be there on Tuesday at 10, 15 a.m., cancel your work and your kids' soccer, but you can just do a virtual call from home and you know be comfortable with that. So I think there is a huge benefit when you're doing that and there's a separate team that's taking care of that. And if an additional diagnostic needs to be done, send it to the hospital and do that. So that's just a premise of how I think about telehealth. But what we found out is that nobody wants to work from home completely. And I totally understand that because we were going into this profession, not because we're software developers that want to sit at home and write code all day. We want to communicate with people. We want to see people, but we are burned out. So It's interesting that 33% of veterinarians do want to have a combination, so not exclusively remote, but combination. 38% of technicians want the combination, and 61% of practice managers want to be remote, and also CSRs, 46%, which is interesting. The most burned out people are practice managers, and I can see how 80% of practice managers' job could be done from home. Like, Why not to let them do at home? the books, the ordering, like all of this stuff, HR stuff, and then come into the hospital and create a happy environment. Why do they have to be in the building? So that was interesting to see that because that supports the idea of, I think we're on the sort of brinks of revolutionizing this space. I think there's a couple networks like Odd and Animal, we're trying to do it in Galaxy, Small Door, Bond Vet. They're doing the combination of the two. There's a hospital and then there's a virtual augmentation of the hospital environment. And then the combination will probably bring more joy, also expanding the ability of, let's say, technicians who have a career span of five, maximum 10 years. Well, we just posted for virtual CSR into honor hospitals. In three days, we had 360, I think, something job applications. And we can find any talent that we want. We don't need to hire. So when you're looking for CSR locally, you're not lucky to find someone who worked in the vet hospital. Maybe you are sometimes in the bigger cities. But usually you hire someone with the maybe CSR experience, but not from the vet hospital. You teach them terminology, your old, you know, Avimark or whatever you have, and then workflows and then all the communication. And then you're training those people. Now, the pool of talent that you're accessing for remote is much more significant. So I think that we definitely need to leverage it more, definitely for CSRs. Most likely for managers, do a hybrid. And then for technicians, teletriage, so essentially hiring retired technicians that can't wrestle with the dogs on the floor anymore. 
They're a wealth of knowledge. You know, hiring an ER nurse that could do teletriage, that's the best people. And then essentially filter the cases, what could be seen online, which should actually go to ER. And then also veterinarians, you know, young moms that just had kids that want to go back to work, but they can't, but you can do work from home. So I think this is a huge solution. And actually we did find that females more than males wanted to be remote. So this is, this is really an important differentiation for the professions that can work online. Okay. So looking at veterinarians, what can be a realistic hybrid work since 33% of them seem to want that kind of hybrid work? So the hybrid work that I see, and this is what we're trying to do in a consolidated area. So basically, when you have five, 10 clinics in one area, we're trying to create a flexible environment, not only for remote, but also in what hospital you work. I've been in a relief vet, so I've done ER, but I also have done relief work all the time. And what I liked is that I can go to five different hospitals, or I had up to 30 that I go to, but my five favorite, because I like their teams. And I still don't like them enough to be there for the whole day for the whole week, <laughs> but I could work there one day a week and I enjoyed it. And then no politics, leave, go to the next hospital the next day. So that's the environment that we're trying to create where you can say, I can do your one shift a month or two shifts a month. I love doing GP, but not more than two days a week. And I would love to work from home because I have young kids. So that's the hybrid environment in which you can say, okay, let me do two days online from home doing appointments back to back. And one of the interesting things, there's kind of, I call it a reverse telehealth, if you will. That's another theory that I have that we're going to try in one of our hospitals. So there is a remote area in Canada, in Labrador, where a friend of mine, he's doing telehealth. And it's interesting because he sits in New Brunswick, which is Atlantic Canada. But in Labrador, there's just not enough doctors. And their VCPR allows the telehealth. So they have a camera in the exam room. And the client comes in with a pet and the technician is holding the pet. And then the veterinarian is sitting in another place and they're talking to the owner. They're doing the exam. The technician is doing the exam. And then the veterinarian gives a recommendation. So that's one mode. Another one is the reversal of that, the inconvenience of the vet business right now in terms of you need to be at, you know, whatever, 10 a.m. on Tuesday. It's inconvenient. So if you think about how you drop off your car, you go in the morning, drop off your car, they call you in the afternoon and say, pick it up. So if you have a facility that has significant space in the back, consider doing those that are drop-off in the morning, super convenient for the pet owners, and then essentially have one vet who is, again, equipped one room with a camera where you book back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back 10 to 15-minute appointments, and essentially you're calling from the room, and then the techs are bringing the cases, and you're just staying in one room, and you're doing the exam. So that's another way of doing it, sort of the hybrid version. And then the third one is texting appointments. I think that right now, more and more, this is a consideration. We're also doing an experiment on that. So there's a strong, I think, proof that people don't like to be on camera. So the idea that we want to be doing telehealth appointment, you know, you want to have your hair look good if you have any compared to me, or, you know, at home with a pizza stain in your t-shirt, you're not presentable. So for me to get onto the telehealth appointment with the professional is a little daunting, but texting is easy. So essentially what we're going to experiment in one of our clinics is set a texting appointment. So you do have a limitation of 20 minutes. And then through teletriage, you understand that you need an appointment with a doctor, but you say at 6.30 PM, you have 20 minute texting appointment, and you can go text back and forth with a veterinarian, exchange pictures, information, whatever that is. And you're spending that texting appointment asynchronous. You can think about what you're saying. 
And then essentially in that 20 minutes, veterinarian also has allocated time, but veterinarian can manage a couple conversations simultaneously. And then you scale a veterinarian, which is we desperately need because we don't have enough vets. So that's another way of addressing the hybrid mode or the telehealth. Wow, those are some innovative ideas. <laughs> I'll tell you if they work, maybe they all fail. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let us know how it works with the text appointments, especially. Yeah, I'd be really curious how that turns out and what the pros and cons are. So Ivan, we both worked ER for 12 plus years, which is much longer than the average emergency vet. And I know you had made a reference to the high rate of burnout among ER doctors earlier. What do you think sustained you in working ER for that period of time? I'm Ukrainian. (laughs) (laughs) I think... I don't know. I actually burned out along the way because I burned out six years into my ER work. So I actually had to leave the profession for six months and then come back. And I think what really improved my work-life balance is actually balancing ER work with the relief. And I think relief was that sort of exit of change of environment and change of culture. But I love ER. I like the chaos. I like the uncertainty and I like the fast decision-making. So I think that I still needed that, but then kind of augmenting that with that, and then later on building the software company. So when I built SmartFlow, then that was another interesting thing. I still worked as a veterinarian, but I had a different avenue and different goals. And we did this study last time, and we actually asked the respondents whether they set the goals. So we actually saw the clear correlation for those that clearly set the year, five-year, 10-year, and quarterly goals for themselves they're happier and less burned down than people that don't. And I think that there's a big theory behind that in general about the veterinarians, because if you look at the general population of the vets, so immediately after vet school, nobody's burned out, even though that's the most exhausting, I think it's more difficult than law school or med school, but they're not burned out. And then the most burned out people are first one, two, three, up to five years of veterinary practice. So there's something happens in between right after graduation into your practice that you do get burned out. And I think it is related to the goal setting as well as a big component, because as a veterinarian, it's easy to set the goal. I want to be a vet. When, you know, you ask anybody and everybody's like, oh, I I also wanted to be a vet when I was 10. You hear it all the time. And it's because when you were 10, you made that decision and you became one. That's a 20-year, very, very targeted goal. So vets are very goal-oriented people. And then you graduate, finally, you get your diploma, you're like, hey, I achieved my goal. And then immediately to a complete halt, what's next? There's no next goal. And I think that helping young veterinarians and graduates to set that next goal, some of them do by setting the internship and specialty, and then talk to specialists, especially those that are double-boarded, because they did that and they're like, I'm stuck. I need to do it again. And they're doing another one. I mean, a good friend of mine, uh, Patrick Walsh, he's an ophthalmologist and he's doing wonderful things right now with VetBloom, but he graduated as the general practitioner and I talked to him about it. I said, do you think there's something to it? He's like, exactly. Graduated and I didn't want to talk about the vaccines and the parasites my entire career. So I became an ophthalmologist and realized that I switched the talk track to glaucoma all the time, but I'm still talking about the same thing every day. So he pivoted and now he's an entrepreneur and happier than he could ever be. Awesome. So as far as, you know, talking about ER and whatnot, you know, scheduling seems to be one of the biggest stressors in the vet professionals. 
what suggestions do you have to make our schedules more sustainable? Well, I think that the scheduling as of allowing the remote work, I think that's important. I think that blocking off the time. So I had a great conversation with a manager of one of the ER hospitals just last week. It was an interesting conversation. I was interviewing her and I said, what is your priority, patient care or people? And she was like, oh, we value our people a lot. And I said, okay, so ER hospital, you demand people to have a break. Is it scheduled? Like, how do you get there? I've worked ER, you can't get a break. And then how do you do it? Then even if you have two vets, do you say every day at 6 p.m. you take a break, which doctors do, because they will just say that we shut down. The office is shut down. I'm grabbing lunch and I'm leaving. But with vets, so I said, okay, so how do you do that? And she said, I'm encouraging the breaks, but if there's patient in the front desk, you have to see them. I was like, okay, well, mm-hmm. is it the patient or is it the vet? And she was very confused. It was like, well, it's the patient, but we value people as well. And I'm like, aha. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's not about people. And then despite the fact that you know that we're the highest suicide profession on the planet, four times more likely to kill ourselves because we don't manage our time well, you're still saying that you have to see a patient. If you can make it so training people in taking breaks properly, if you can walk out in the treatment room or the waiting room and see that everybody's stable or at least stabilized, I think that we have to make that call and say, okay, I'm unplugging. I'm, I don't know, walking out, whatever it is. You can't walk out as an ER vet, but like I'm shutting the door down and then you know that for 40 minutes, you can't see me. I'll eat lunch, turn on the Netflix and whatever it is. But I think that tools like teletriage will help. I think that things like remote work and basically splitting your time between the different variety of work is very important. That's another trigger to burnout is the lack of variety of work. I think that's important. And yeah, I think those are the main important ones. Oh, that's great. You made me think of, I like to evaluate contracts. And, you know, yeah. first question is, you know, what does a day look like? Because they'll put, you have to work eight, 10 hours a day. But when you look at the time frame that the doctor is in the hospital, I'm like, hey, that's like 11 hours. Oh, there's this lunch hour. Like, is it really a lunch hour or do you actually work during that lunch hour? Right. And then it says you work till 5 p.m. Is it really 5 p.m.? Is the last yep. appointment at 4.45? Mm-hmm. So you still need a lot of paperwork to do and you leave at 6, 6.30. So it's being realistic about those aspects. Yeah, that's another thing. As a ER vet, my main thing was I love post-it notes. And on each post-it note, I had like really small recognition of what I've seen. It's like, you know, fluffy, whatever, Mm -hmm. and, you know, limping. And I don't even remember what it is. And then I'm trying to parse it from the practice management system, what it was when I'm doing the medical records. So those medical records were horrific. But you're sitting down at the end of the day because I could crank through like 50 appointments in the span of a day, but then you're sitting down and very quickly to your 11-hour day, you add on another three or four. And the fact that they're paying you for it, it doesn't matter because you are burned out. And then at that point, you have this feeling creeping up as, well, I'm working so hard, nobody recognizes it. And then that's the burnout. That's where it creeps up because you feel underappreciated because you're working so hard, nobody cares. They think that you're paying you adequately for it. And then if you're like me, when you're going from one shift and then drive to another location, sleep for three hours in the car and go to another 10-hour shift, that's where things happen. And so could a potential answer be going back to your goals and saying, okay, well, what if a GP office anyway was seeing 48 patients a day? Do you think they would be more likely to be happy with that kind of caseload 
if they also have some time where they're doing telehealth or teletriage or some other role versus that being day in, day out, potentially five days a week, what they're doing. Well, I don't know if GPs are seeing 50 appointments a day. So uh, (laughs) I haven't seen GP like that. Yeah. But it's interesting. Again, it depends how people are motivated. I don't think that number of appointments is actually that strong correlation with the burnout. I think it's, are you happy doing what you're doing? Are you in the flow? Like, are you getting into nirvana? Is your team jiving together and you're flipping through appointments and you're seeing patients jumping into surgery? Then your day goes 11 hours or 15. It goes like one hour and you're leaving all inspired and happy. So I think it's the environment. I think it's how well the team is dialed in. I think that if everybody's happy and compensated and if you have enough team, like there's a lot of factors there. Out of six burnout triggers, overworked is only one. There's others that are disconnect of core values. There's the lack of conflict resolution and then breakdown of the community. There's underappreciation, doesn't have to be money. It's just thank you, you know, goes a long way. So overwork is only one out of six triggers. And we tend to use burnout in every aspect of it. And when we're saying we've seen 50 patients, oh, I'm burned out. Not true. I can see many patients a day and not be burned out. There is a correlation, but I think there's more to it than just the number of patients. Yeah, I think so too, because that's often not what people talk about. You know, it's more of, but I've got to stay afterward for hours and do medical records or, but I've got this management issue that never gets resolved, that sort of a thing. And so, Ivan, you've touched on a lot of things that employers can do to help their team members with work-life balance, but can you kind of summarize for us just a few things that if you're a practice out there, you can focus on to help your team? Well, I like classically going against those burnout triggers and kind of avoid them. Do you have the proper culture that has the core values that they're aligned? And not like a, you know, a big corporate exercise of core values, but do you all believe in and aligned around the same purpose and goal? Is everybody fairly compensated and is there unfairness on the team? Is there favoritism? So eliminate that. Don't have favorites in the hospital or in the schedule. So everybody has to be treated equally. Do you have people overworked and do you make sure that they have a break and do you make sure that they're taking the vacation and things like that? And not because you allow a vacation, but do you kick them out and tell them you have to take one? And that's an important thing. And then do you have the mechanism of communication? The veterinary medicine is the lowest EQ profession, and it's actually statistically. So do you provide training for conflict resolution, for feedback provision? Do you have regular meetings with your staff and understand their you know, feelings? And do you get the regular feedback provision from them? And it's a monthly or quarterly exercise, not you know, give a review to increase compensation. That's the worst thing that everybody thinks, that the review means pay raise. Separate the two. That's performance and that's review basically as who you are and how do you behave in the team environment. So all of those things I think are very important. And then look at the things of utilizing telehealth, utilizing teletriage, utilizing the hybrid mode of work, especially based on people needs. So if you are a young parent and need to be more at home, establish those environments where you can work from home. I think that part is going to come. We were finally solving the telehealth, and I think only a couple networks, and I think it will become more second nature where we will have, you know, people that work remotely, people that work in hospital, and people that work hybrid. But it's not the same person has 30 appointments and somehow need to see someone on the screen. I think those are the main ones. And then use technology that works 
that helps with the workflow. And, you know, the important word is works because <laughs> you can really ruin and then frustrate people with technology more than help them with it. Yeah, going back a little bit to what you said earlier, Ivan, about breaks and ER and <laughs> going back to, okay, are you more of a people-oriented practice versus being you know, a more patient-oriented practice? It's funny because the last job that I had, I was eating lunch in the break room and a technician who was an experienced ER technician came in and she said, I've never seen an ER doctor eat lunch. Yeah. I believe that. <laughs> You're a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, though, for that to be the culture, you know? Yeah. We go from new graduate, which is a pace, you know, high pace environment. We're on that momentum. And then we dive into internship or ER. And it's somehow it's an A player, perfectionist, high pace without thinking of what effect it has. And when you're young, you don't understand that. But sleep deprivation and high pace work and all of that stuff at some point causes mileage and you don't notice. And then all of a sudden you're in the dark place when nothing, when you change, whether it's vacation, no vacation, you just hate everything that's going on at work and in life. And that's what's called burnout. Mm -hmm. And so certainly in our profession, student debt and financial strain are common pain points. And so what are some uncommon benefits that an employer could provide or consider providing to help ease the burden of those things? Well, I don't know at this point if, like, I'm just comparing to other things. And I know that, you know, I graduated, what, 17 years ago? And it has been a thing, you know, that students graduate with a lot of debt. But if right now we have $100,000 bonus on the sign up for a new grad, I mean, that's great. I, I love the fact that that's happening, but I didn't know, like, that's a good thing to provide. But I think that the industry is going spiral on that too. Because we're getting this insane compensation sign-up bonuses to people to work. And I don't think it's sustainable because on the other side of it, you're pushing the vets then to produce because that needs to fit into the whole formula. And the hospital is the financial mechanism that has to have the profit, the expenses, the revenue, the staffing line, the COGS line, and you have to control all of them. So if your you know, sign-up bonuses and the compensation for veterinarians becomes out of line, the way that the financial documents work on the hospital, or if you're a consolidator, you're dialing in the entire hospital productivity to the doctor compensation. So the higher we drive doctor compensations, the higher we will drive everything else and make them work harder. So I don't know if there's a happy formula for that. Yeah, I don't know. I think that becoming entrepreneurs for veterinarians is a better answer than asking the employers to provide something more. Because I think that compared to when I graduated, the new grads are provided with a lot, like a lot more than I have been. But I think that if you're feeling the pressure of the loans and everything else, become an entrepreneur, open your clinic, buy in, you know, build it together with someone, take management courses and become a business owner. You know, I've had a twisted path. I build a lab, I build a software company, we're building the group. Like you can do so many things by being veterinarian. So think outside of the box and come up with a more scaled ways to generate income and your general wealth. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Willie and I have had a, a lot of conversations about sign-on bonuses and have had <laughs> conversations with folks elsewhere. And one of the things about those is, yeah, it can be a ton of money, but then it can also make vets feel like they're trapped 
at the company because they have to stay two, three, four, sometimes five years to get to keep the sign-on bonus without owing the company money. And so that's a new problem. But they ate the cheese. So whose fault is that? (laughs) (laughs) You got into the mousetrap. So, you know, don't accept it and be free. Be a locum in addition. That's the thing. And then watch for the non-competes. That's an important thing. So, you know, you can sign up and get the sign-up bonus, but if you want to be more free, so the relief work is great. If you Mm -hmm. want to make additional income and if you're not at the burnout point and then if you're committed because you wanted that first check to cover your loan or whatever it is, that's fine. And it's only three to five years. I mean, you know, when you're a new grad, that seems like a lot of years, but in three years, you're going to be free. But whatever that first hundred grand check that you need to use it for, you made that decision. But in parallel, become a relief vet. But make sure you're not getting those non-competes. I mean, that just has to go. Agreed. So Ivan, what is the best way for our colleagues to get in contact with you? Definitely anybody who is interested in talking to me. You can find me if you can spell my last name on LinkedIn. So it's it's fairly long, but just type in Ivan Zach and I'm sure that you'll find me on any platform or at uh, galaxybets.com. That's uh, my current gig. And also at Veterinary Innovation Podcast. That's also where you can find us. And if you're an entrepreneur, we're happy to promote you there. All right. Ivan, what is your best advice for our listeners? I think my best advice would be don't think that treating pets is the only thing that veterinarian can do. So there's so many different avenues in our profession. And if you feel like you're trapped treating animals day to day, you don't have to do that. I'm talking to two people right here that are doing the podcast, you know, and as I said, you can build software, you can build labs, you can build hospitals, you can become a surgeon, you can become anything. Now, looking back, I think the veterinary medicine for me became, it's almost like a business degree. When you graduate with business degree, you can do any business. So I think it's a little more narrow. When you become a veterinarian, you can do many things in veterinary domain. So you have an incredible background, but the avenue that you want to take, there's so many things in the industry that you can do. Don't lock your mind into that you're here just to treat the pets because that's the school that you went to. All right. Excellent advice. Ivan, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was fun. Thanks. If you liked this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.